If you would, please open up your copies of God's Word, the book of Isaiah. We're going to be beginning at the end of chapter 52 and then reading the entirety of chapter 53. I'll read it and then I'll ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouth, mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like, he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, is, that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous." And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would show us your word in a powerful way tonight. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the clarity, the beauty, the simple gospel presentation shown here. And we thank you so much for the man that is revealed to us, the man of sorrows, the man who was led like a sheep to slaughter, though we like sheep wandered away from you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has indeed taken our place there upon the cross. Lord, I pray that you might give us great love for him tonight, that we might worship him. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We started to look at the servant songs of Isaiah just last week, and I began that sermon, uh, that short study, by thinking and asking the question, who is Jesus Christ? And I put it forward to you that the servant songs of Isaiah are one of the greatest places to go to find beautiful and dynamic pictures of Christ. I use the illustration of portraits or old Renaissance paintings that are dynamic and with many different focal points and many different things all catching our eye when we look at them. That's what these songs are like. They show us a wide panoply of who Christ is. Well, in the first servant song that we looked at last week in Isaiah 42, we saw this about Christ, that he was the meek king. Well, what is the focus here in the last servant song in Isaiah 52 and 53? I could summarize it like this. Christ is a worthy sacrifice. He's a man of pain and sorrow and rejection. He's a man who is hated and despised. And yet at the same time, he's the man who earns his reward from the Father, who earns his eternal prize, a people whom he redeems. He's a worthy sacrifice. I've got three points for us tonight that hopefully we can walk through the text and begin to understand it a little bit better. Those three points are this. We see a rejected servant. We see an atoning servant. And we see a rewarded servant. A rejected servant, an atoning servant, and a rewarded servant. Let's start with the first point. The rewarded, excuse me, rejected servant. The first thing we see is a bit of tension right as the text opens up. I want to direct your eyes to verse 13 in chapter 52. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, this should already be familiar to us because we saw last week that the servant's song began the same way. With that great word, behold. Look at my servant. Behold him. Look at him. If you want to know the salvation of God, if you want to see God work, well, God tells you very clearly, just look at my servant. Behold him. And what will he do? He'll be wise. He'll be successful is the idea there. He'll be high and lifted up and exalted. And in every way, he's a glorious and wonderful servant. But there's a little bit of tension right away because he's rejected at the same time. Here is the wonderful servant of God, and yet men don't see that. They see him and they see something pitiable. They see a man whom they despise. Look with me at the next verse in verse 14. It says, as many were astonished at you. And that's a very graphic word, astonished. It means that they were horrified, that they were disgusted by him. They saw a man and they didn't see beauty or glory. Rather, they hated what they saw. It was vile to them. And what's the reason? Look at the rest of verse 14 His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Once again, it's it's somewhat illustrative language. It's graphic. 
It's describing someone who's disfigured, who is a grotesque man. It's almost asking the question, is this man even human? What is he? What could he possibly be? Now, we should ask, what is this concerning? How could anyone ever describe Christ in that way as grotesque, as hardly even human or seeming to not appear human? Well, on the one hand, it could mean that it's talking about the cross. Could be a description of Christ as he goes up and is tortured. Recall that his body is beaten. His body is broken. He is whipped. He is tortured. He is abused. He is stabbed. And it's a bloody experience. And so this very well may be a description of Christ as he looks at the cross. But it could also be just a description of how Christ was treated. That is to say, people simply treated him as if he was not human. Simply treated him as if he was a horror and a freak show and someone to be avoided. After all, we've caught a glimpse of that perhaps even this morning. What was said about Christ? He's crazy. He's demon-possessed. He's a Samaritan. He's someone you don't want to be around. You have to avoid him at all costs. And so whether it's describing how people treated him or the cross, the point is the same. He was not someone that people wanted to be around. And there's further tension as this text unfolds. He does incredible works, we're shown next. But those works, just as the person, they are rejected as well. Look at verse 15. It says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And when you hear this word, to sprinkle, I want you to think of a very religious word. Uh, Old Testament word, a sacrifice kind of word. It is to consecrate something, to set something apart. That's when you sprinkle blood or sprinkle water, what are you doing? You're setting something apart as holy to God. So, for example, Aaron and his sons, when they were consecrated as priests, they are, uh, there's blood sprinkled over them. Why? Because they're being set apart for their priestly Work And so what's going on here? Christ is sprinkling the nations. Well, he's doing a wonderful thing, isn't he? He's, he's sanctifying the nations. He's making them holy. He's bringing the nations to God. He's making them fit for worship and to be called among God's people. And what is the response to this amazing work? Well, kings shut their mouth is what we're told. They see it and they're stunned. And they're shocked, and that's not to be taken as a good thing. They can't believe that someone as horrifying as this man would be someone to do something like this. And then it goes on. Look at verse 15. It says, For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And what's going on there? Well, once again, it describes another of the great works of Christ. It particularly describes the preaching of the gospel. And it describes, really, pagans, people who are far off. It tells us that one day, pagans will know God. People who are at the farthest ends of the earth, they will know the truth. People who've never heard of God, they will come to know God through the Son, and they will believe. It's really an amazing thing. 
But once again, look at how that action is met. Look at the response in verse 1, 53 verse 1. Many will still reject Christ, even though he does such a great work of preaching the gospel. Look at verse 1. It says, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And he asks this question somewhat rhetorically. Who has believed this? And the answer assumed there is not many. Not many people believe in this wonderful Savior. Not many people hear his message and think he is wonderful. Not many people will follow him. He is a rejected servant. He's a rejected preacher. He's coming with a rejected message, Isaiah prophesies for us. And we should ask, why is he so rejected? Well, keep going in your text and you'll see what Isaiah says. Look at verse 2. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. What is it that is so uh, causing such rejection from those that Christ encounters? Well, the short answer is that they look at Christ and he seems completely ordinary. He seems completely um, not astounding in any way, you might say. They look at him and they say, here's a man who doesn't seem to be powerful in any way. He doesn't come with armies. He doesn't come with soldiers in his name. He's not a wealthy man. In fact, in his ministry, he's poor and he's homeless. And he goes from town to town, completely reliant upon the kindness of those in the town. He's not a, he's not a great politician. He doesn't come with a great plan to overthrow the government to free the Jewish people, to coup the Roman authorities or anything like this. He's not even what you might say is a wise visionary. He doesn't come with pithy sayings and uh, some 10-step program for success. If you just do these things, then you'll be happy and wealthy and strong and blessed. He doesn't have any of those things. He doesn't seem all that great on the surface. And look at verse 3, it really summarizes just how much hatred is directed at this man. It says, for he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. There is no greater indictment of fallen man than this. When God himself comes, and he comes bringing power and grace and truth and blessing, what is his welcome? He's hated. Look at what Isaiah says. He says, we esteemed him not. And that means that we looked at him and said he has no value. There's no use we have of a man like this. The world looked at Christ and said there is no desire we have for this man's ways or no love for this man's laws, no thankfulness for this man and the grace that he brings. This is your servant. Look at him. He's hated and despised. He's rejected. But we need to see the second thing about him. He's not just rejected. He's also an atoning servant. Here in Isaiah 53, we have 
one of the greatest descriptions of what we call substitutionary atonement. It's the idea that this suffering man, Christ, God in the flesh, is a sacrifice for our sin, a satisfaction of the wrath of God. And really, the suffering becomes the clear focus of this section. Think about how much suffering you see just jam-packed into this one short text. I'll just read you some of the words that are used of Christ. He's stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, wounded, oppressed, afflicted, slaughtered, and no doubt I'm missing others. And we see that even though here is this man of great suffering and death, his death is misunderstood. Look at verse 4. It's misunderstood by everyone around him. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So what's going on here? What's being described in this short verse? Well, we have a reality. They're looking at Christ and they're seeing a man who is beaten, who is bruised, who is carrying sorrow. And what do they see? They say, well, this is a man smitten by God. This is a man afflicted by God. But they don't understand why. The assumption is, is that it must be because this man is hated by God. It must be that this man is a wretched sinner. It must be that this man is a blasphemer. After all, how many times is he accused of sin just in the gospel accounts? He was called a glutton. He was called a drunkard. He was somebody who ate with sinners. When he was brought up on charges, it was charges of blaspheming. He's a terrible man. So, of course, terrible things would happen to this man, so the world thinks. And this became a great stumbling block for the Jewish people. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, that's what Paul says. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. Why was it a stumbling block? Because to the Jewish people, looking at a man who was beaten and killed and destroyed, well, certainly that couldn't have been the glorious Messiah. Certainly that couldn't have been God's man. After all, he seems to be hated by God. So they get it wrong. They misunderstand Christ's death, but what is the real meaning of Christ's death? Let me give three statements about Christ's death from this text. And we'll, we'll go through each one of these uh, somewhat briefly. The first thing we see in this text about Christ's death is that his death is a payment for sin. If I could, let me take several verses and group them together for just a moment. Look with me at verse 5. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then look with me at verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then just one more text. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. So what do we see here in, this, in these verses? Well, the first thing that we see is the true problem that we have as humanity. 
the true problem that we have. And it's sin and its consequent penalty. It's not just sin, but it's because we're sinners, therefore we are under the wrath and penalty and judgment of God. Look with me at how sin is described in this text. It's described as transgression first. And what does that mean? Well, it's a word that means rebellion. It's a word that means violent revolt. In other words, sin is not just a mistake. Sin is a coup. Sin is an attack on the sovereignty of God. As John tells us in the New Testament, sin is lawlessness. It is a rejection of the law of God, a rejection of God's truth, a rejection of God's ways. That's why here in Isaiah 53, we're described as sheep wandering away. And what are, the, what are we doing? We're going our own way. We're making our own laws. We're living by our own standards. We're living by our own truth. Sin is transgression. It's rebellion. But there's another word used here as well. It's iniquity. What does that word mean? Well, it means something that is offensive to God, hated by God. There's a sense of vileness. Uh, I, I think of it something uh, of a word that stinks. It's something hated by God. It's something that when you see it, you immediately know it deserves judgment. It's something that so clearly brings guilt. It's not something God, a holy God, is simply going to let go. No. Now, why do we need to think of sin in these terms? Why do we have to properly understand our sin? Well, we need it for this reason. Our knowledge of sin directly affects our knowledge of grace. In other words, if we have a low view of sin, then you will have a low view of of the grace of God. Let me see if I can illustrate that truth for us in terms of medicine. Think about what happens if you get a cut. What's the solution? A Band-Aid will suffice. What if you have a fever? A Band-Aid won't do. You need bed rest and you need perhaps medicine. Well, what if you have cancer? Bed rest and medicine aren't going to do it. You need something much more drastic. You need chemotherapy. What if your heart is failing? Heart failure, what is the only way to live? You have to have a new heart. Now, what if you're dead? What if you're dead in the grave? What then must God do spiritually to bring you to life? You see, we need to understand how bad our sin is, that we are spiritually dead in order to understand how great and how sweet and how wonderful the grace of God is. Brothers and sisters, Christ did not die for mistake makers. He didn't die for imperfect people. He died for rebels. He died for enemies. He died for treacherous men who hated him and his law. And what did that death do? That death paid the penalty of all of that sin. That death satisfied our debt to God. It was Christ who bore our punishment, our guilt... He was cut off in our place. This is vital for the people of God to understand that when we look at the cross, we need to know that we were supposed to be on that cross. We should have been there hanging where Christ is hanging. He is bearing our sin and he pays for all of it, every 
last bit. That's the first statement about the death of Christ. It's the longest, and I've got two more. Second, Christ's death is a peace offering as well. It atones for our sin, but it also brings us peace. Let me group a couple of verses together here again. Look at verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And then look at verse 12. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession on the transgressors. These verses are not focused on Christ paying the penalty of our sin, but rather reestablishing what it is that we have lost because of our sin. And what is that? It's fellowship with God. It's Christ in his death who brings us peace with God, who brings us a relationship with God, who restores what has been destroyed and shattered because of our sin. He brings healing. He brings uh, a broken relationship and he heals it. Christ also intercedes for us, we're told. That is, he ministers on our behalf. He comes in our name. That is, he brings us to God. He takes us before the Father. He brings us close into the holy of holies. That's the idea here. Do you want to know God? Do you want to fellowship with him? Do you want to enjoy God personally? There's only one way. You need to have peace with God. And Christ gives you peace. Third, a third statement about the death of Christ. Christ's death is the basis of our justification. Look with me at verse 11, just one verse here. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. And so we've already seen one transfer going on in this text. We've seen our sin transferred to the Lamb of God, and he bears our sin. But here there is a second transfer. It's Christ's righteousness transferred to his people. Notice the, the flow and the logical order of verse 11. Christ is righteous. He is the righteous one of God, the righteous servant. And he makes many to be accounted righteous. And I want to focus just briefly on that word accounted. It's a vital word for us. In the New Testament, that word is translated justify. It's justification. It's describing the work of justification where God makes sinners righteous in his sight. Where God declares sinners righteous. Now, how does he do that? What has to be a righteousness given to us? As we've already seen, we're, we're sheep that wander away. So it's not our own righteousness. It must come from another source. It must come from Christ himself. And so Christ's righteousness is transferred to us. This is the great Pauline doctrine of justification. And in fact, he goes to this text when he's teaching on justification. Let me give you just one example from Romans Chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He's just quoting Isaiah. But he's teaching that by our faith, we can be justified by him. And we're told in Isaiah 53 that this 
imputation, this accounting of righteousness, happens by his knowledge. Do you see that in verse 11? By his knowledge. Now, that could mean one of two things. It could mean Christ's knowledge, knowledge of the plan of salvation. In other words, I would simply take it as Christ knows how one is to be saved. He knows how a person is supposed to be saved. But it could also be taken in another way. It could mean knowledge of Christ. In that sense, I would take it as faith in Christ. To know Christ by faith. And I think that fits very squarely with the New Testament teaching on justification. That is, by our faith, we are united to Christ. By our faith, we receive all that belongs to the Son, including perfect righteousness, perfect purity. And when we're united to him by faith, he gives us what we don't have. He gives us righteousness. That is the basis of our justification. So this is the suffering servant. This is the one who pays the penalty for our sins. He's the one who brings us peace with God. And he alone is the basis of our justification. I have a third point for us tonight. Brief. We need to see Christ as the rewarded servant as well. Behind all of this text is a sense of a plan. Behind all of this text is a perfect will. And we see that described for us. It shows us that the cross is not an accident. It's not plan B. It's not a mistake or something that God didn't intend or never wanted to get to. Now, in one sense, the cross is the worst act of evil ever committed. It is the most atrocious act ever committed by sinful, sinful men. And yet at the same time, it's willed by God to be for the greatest good ever accomplished in this whole earth. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Peter says the same thing in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching his great sermon at Pentecost. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God... You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What are we to take from this? Well, we're to take the idea that this cross was always in the perfect and good and splendid plan of God. And we also need to see that Christ was in perfect agreement with this plan. We don't see a man battling against fate that he cannot control. We don't see a man fighting against what he knows what must be done. No, rather we see Christ the man following, obeying, submitting. In other words, he had a perfect union of will with the Father. Look at verse 7. It says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So why doesn't he resist? After all, Christ could summon legions of angels. Because he shares the same goal as the Father. To redeem a people for himself. We see this teased for us in the ending of our text. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. We're told that Christ looks past his anguish. 
He looks beyond to see what the reward, what the fruit will be, and its satisfaction. Why? Because he makes many to be accounted righteous. And then what will he do with the many? Well, look at verse 12. It gives us our answer. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. It's describing for us that Christ will share all that is his with his people. It says that all of the spoil, all of the riches of his victory. In other words, Christ will overcome the world. He'll overcome sin and death. And he will be rewarded by the Father with eternal blessedness. And it's his great delight to share that with you and I. To share that with his people. There's a sense in which we could say the people is the reward for Christ. Worshippers are the reward. Communion with redeemed sinners is the reward, particularly a holy people and a holy kingdom with Christ reigning from the top, sitting at the right hand of God, and he has his glorious people with him. Hebrews 12 tells us about this, and I love this verse. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's telling us something remarkable. Jesus' joy was to do his Father's will. His joy was to redeem you, to have you for himself, to unite his people to him by faith and he to him. In other words, Jesus doesn't want to just give you life. He wants to give you eternal life with him. He wants to be with you. After all, he tells his disciples, I go to prepare rooms for you. And he's doing that even as we speak. He is preparing heaven for eternal glory with his, with his people. And so this means something very special. It means that if you have believed, then you belong to Christ. You are his. In fact, this text would tell you, you are Christ's prized possession. You are his great love. The church is his treasure. It's his bride And he proves it by suffering for his bride. He loves his people. They're his reward from the Father. Well, this is the servant that we see. He's a man of great pain, of sorrows, of suffering, and of death. But what comes out of that is a servant who loves his people. A servant who is willing to die for them. To die in their place. To pay the penalty of their sin. To make us righteous by faith. He's the servant of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for our Savior. We're so thankful for the Lamb who was sacrificed for us. We're so thankful for the peace that we have with you and the relationship that we have with you. We thank you for the sweetness of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with praise, that you would give us great thankfulness, that you would give us great joy in our salvation. For we know Christ has joy in the salvation that he has given. And we pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.